Hey listeners, this is Eli Wisdom from the American Physician Scientists Association. Today's podcast episode is the audio from a recent APSA webinar where we hosted a panel of current dual degree program directors to tackle the topic of interviews. The information shared in this episode is invaluable to anyone who is preparing to interview this cycle or in future cycles, and we cannot thank our panelists enough. We hope you as listeners find this episode valuable too, and encourage you to share it with others as well. As always, follow the American Physician Scientists Association on social media using the handles in the show notes to keep tabs on when our next live applicant interactive series will be. Thank you. Welcome to the Double Docs Podcast, a podcast devoted to exploring the MD-PhD journey of UCLA Caltech med students. In this podcast, we share our views and discuss things we find interesting. These are not meant to be recommendations or medical advice. These are solely our opinions and experiences and not representative of those views expressed by any affiliate institution. We started this podcast in order to introduce people to MD-PhD programs, provide insight on how to apply, talk about what the journey looks like, and what your career options look like after. So how would you recommend an applicant respond to the research-related related interview question if they do not know the answer to it? I can start. I personally don't mind. You know, you're here to train, to learn. Uh, if you're humble enough to say, I really don't know, but I can guarantee you I will know by tomorrow morning because I cannot sleep peacefully over unanswered questions. This is a question that would turn me on because what I tolerate the least is people sitting comfortably on ignorance that doesn't desire to improve. There's nothing wrong in being ignorant. You're going to be, by being a physician scientist at any stage of your career, you need to accept to be ignorant. I'm ignorant in so many ways, but being humble to admit it and to actually commit to the work to make that, to change that is what makes the physician scientists maintain that inquisitive mind that will be transformative. I think you should answer that question um, the way we encourage um, students to answer questions during their qualifying exams for their PhD. You can say, I don't know the answer as to whether protein A interacts with protein B, but I do know that there's this interaction and that that's important for this disease pathway or something. So you know, a little bit of the bait and switch over to what you do know so that you can illustrate your knowledge in the field that you were working in. I think it's fine to say you don't know when you don't know. There's so much we don't know. Um, but again, I look for the passion. I The answer I would want to see is, boy, I don't know, but that's a great question. You know, what, you know, what, what should I be thinking? You know, uh, wow, thank you. Uh, it's the same, same idea of, you know, going back to the lab and thinking about that and knowing the answer by tomorrow. But uh, don't try to fake it, whatever you do. Yeah, 
quite a long question. So when should I expect an interview invite? And uh, if I do not get accepted any interview invite or receiving any acceptance, when should I reconsider to reapply? So, so everybody needs to understand that the, the interview and acceptance season lasts a long time. Seems like it lasts most of the year. Uh, 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 in our program, we have already started uh, offering interview uh, spots, and we will continue to interview through the end of December. Some programs interview into January and maybe even a little bit later. Um, we do most of our interviews between late September and late December. Um, and it's a rolling process, so we're going to continue to be inviting people for interviews uh, during that whole time. Um, and our program works on a rolling acceptance uh, uh, pattern. So we will start accepting people for admission to our MSTP within a few weeks after uh, the interviews in some cases. But that, but we will continue to do that all the way through the spring in, you know, often into April or May, uh, as uh, a lot of students hold multiple acceptances and are on wait lists and hold lists. And I think we all wish the process would get over sooner, but it tends it tends to be getting longer rather than shorter in our in our uh, uh, situation. Um, if you know, if you don't get in during that season, you can apply the following year. Uh, but that would be your, I think, your soonest opportunity to reapply. Um, you know, the other thing that might be interesting to to listeners is, I think, I think the most recent data there are about eighteen hundred applicants to MD PhD programs every year, something like that, and about six hundred to seven hundred get accepted or get matriculated. So. About a third of all the people who apply to MD-PhD programs get in somewhere. But obviously, those 1,800 applicants are applying to multiple programs. So each program has, you know, hundreds of applicants. And, um, uh, you know, that's, that's why the, the interview process. I've asked the question, how many, how many students are interviewed each year? And I don't think we have that data. We don't know exactly how many of the 1,800 applicants to MD-PhDs actually get interviews because uh, the programs don't report that data. Uh, but I think it would be interesting to report that data in the future and, and get a sense of that. I was going to say um, or add on to that about uh, if you don't get in, um, what do you do? Uh, use your resources. Contact the schools that offer it. I know our school offers um, post-application counseling to uh, really sit down and look at your application with the admissions staff, talk about areas that you can strengthen your application. Um, so do that. Uh, don't, don't necessarily only rely on your own judgment, right, to, to improve your application for a reapplication. Um, our school offers um, a, a, a non-traditional or alternate entry path into our MD-PhD program. This may be something that's offered at other institutions also. Uh, we accept current medical students into our MD-PhD program. So um, I think one of the chat questions was, um, 
when, when, or how do we decide what are the signs that we would recommend a student to, to take the MD only versus MD PhD? Um, our admissions committee will often recommend to uh, an applicant to, um, to reapply for our MD PhD program as a medical student after they've taken uh, the opportunity to get some additional research experience um, as a medical student. So that that is another pathway into our MD PhD program at UMMC. Yeah, just to add to the seat interview season, many of the programs uh, start up uh, at different times. I will tell you, for us, we are one of the later schools. We will not start our interviews in January. So those of you who are interested in UCSD, uh, we may not start inviting people until uh, later in the fall, which, and this is actually quite true for different schools. You can, as you heard from uh, Steve from the University of Iowa, and probably many on the line may start their interviews already this month. Uh, others, and it does seem like the West Coast schools will tend to start a little bit later. It does sometimes seem to be uh, regional. So don't panic if you have not quite heard now. Uh, it is a long season, and as Steve mentioned, it can very well go out into April. Uh, so, um, and, you know, I think Hannah's point is good, uh, and I think we for certain and other MD-PhD programs will accept students from the medical school uh, phase. Um, obviously, no guarantees, but that is an option. Sometimes you're not sure, or you get you realize when you get into medical school that you want to go down that pathway. So, uh, and I think it's, you know, a, a way that the MD-PhD programs are thinking about um, encouraging students into the career pathways through uh, after spending a year or two in medical school, maybe having even a little bit of research time in medical school, like, hey, this is really cool. I want to try this out uh, as an actual career pathway. And certainly have students and probably others in line have students that have come through that pathway. So I agree with everything the other panelists have said. I want to say one thing though. So if you come in with a reapplication years later, because this is career you really want, please highlight what you have done in the past year to make your applications more competitive. Uh, what I hate is to see the exact application coming here coming in two years in a row with no sign of improvement, just stubbornly thinking, I deserve it, I'm good, I have to get it. Listen to what Anna says, develop your, you know, uh, reach out, see what you can do to improve, uh, get feedback from others. By and large, the best thing you can do to improve your application if you want to go um, MD, PhD is to do more research and hopefully get your name on some publications. Yeah, I would say that if you reapply and you've not done any research in the in the year in between applications, that's a red red flag, a negative red flag for us. This is a very niche question. So uh, the uh, attendant asked that if anyone had any, any thought about the Oxcam, which is Oxford and Cambridge program, if uh, and if uh, they had ever had any student group to go to, 
uh, they would be interesting to hear about more and then what factor into the interview. So I, I can speak to that, I guess. We, we've not had an OxCam uh, trainee, but we've considered it a couple times over the years. Um, uh, the, the, the issue for us is that um, if, if one of our students is getting their PhD in Oxford or Cambridge or at the NIH, um, how, to, how to really engage them in our program. Uh, because our, our MD PhD program is a lot more than just getting a PhD and getting an MD. There's, there's programmatic activities that our students uh, participate in that are, we think are valuable to their development, their career development as a physician scientist. And so we would have to, on an individual basis, try to figure out how to integrate that OxCam student into our program, uh, not just come in for the medical school years. Um, it's, it's probably a little bit easier now since we're, we've all gotten used to virtual activities. You know, it was, a, it was a real challenge in the past when a student was off campus, but now it may be easier uh, to participate in programmatic activities uh, virtually uh, than it was in, in prior years. So we would, we would entertain those, those applicants on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, we, we've had uh, one experience with a student at NIH and um, they did their research at NIH and, I'll, and, and it just so happened that one of the, their primary mentor here at Michigan State had a collaborator at NIH. And so they ended up spending two of their four years of graduate work uh, at the NIH doing their research there. But that was kind of a special case because, you know, it was a, it was a strong collaboration between a, 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 the primary mentor at Michigan State. So trying to, to do two different sides of the, of the training at two different places Again, as Steve says, we 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 have this really integrated system, and and we think that's what students need, and and that's what we would prefer. So I, we have currently four OxCam students in our program, and is some uh, the person who may have asked it and others uh, on the line might know is actually the OxCam. There are different tracks. <clears throat> uh, don't remember them. I think there are three tracks in different uh, varieties. Some that were uh, highlighted by Steve and Brian. Uh, we have them in actually every flavor possible, those that have actually start their medical school and then go off to uh, Oxford. We've had others that have done it at Oxford or Cambridge, and then they've completed their PhD. I think this is, I think, what Steve might be mentioning, and then coming back and actually coming to our medical school. Um, and then uh, we've had one that actually decided to, who came into the MD-PhD program, but that decided not to come through our UCSD program, but through the OxCam, because he was accepted to both and decided to go to OxCam, but he's still part of our MDP, uh, part of our medical school, which was a very interesting situation. It's a kind of an unusual one. Um, so we do, and we, uh, it's not frequent, but we do have a history of it. I think we've graduated at least two or three in the last five or six years. So it can happen. Integration is, uh, I appreciate what Brian and Steve said, that is a key component. That is the main, one of the biggest components of an MD-PhD uh, program is the community. And uh, we have uh, worked hard to try to integrate these students at different levels. Um, 
And but without going into details, we have figured out ways to integrate them, uh, not only through activities, but we have also communities within our MD-PhD program where they have big SIBs and little SIBs so that these students, when they do come out, come to our program a little asynchronously, they are hooked up with students actually within certain communities uh, within our MD-PhD program. So it's an interesting question. Uh, and I don't know if there was a part of the question as to how to make that decision. And, you know, I, I think you kind of have to read and explore the different uh, options within OxCam. There could be somebody that you're really interested in at Oxford or Cambridge or the NIH. Uh, that's often what happens. And then um, what happens is they decide to do a PhD there. And then afterwards, they apply to medical school. So um, I would highly encourage uh, those of you who are interested in that pathway to kind of read it because it's a little bit, it's, it's a really interesting pathway, but one that you have to be sure that you understand because there isn't a guarantee to getting into a medical school after you get your PhD. You do have to apply, but where the guarantee comes in, I believe is the NIH well helps support the medical school thing. So uh, interesting question. <laughs> So the question is about the MMI interview. So do any of your institution have conducting the multiple mini interview format? And if so, how do you recommend preparing for this? Well, I guess I'll go first and admit that we have the MMI. I think that uh, I think people of the medical schools are uh, have different policies or even reevaluating the MMIs, but uh, we have of the MMI. With regards to preparation, it's interesting as the medical school uh, says and recommends, and I would kind of agree with it, there's not much that you can do uh, with actually preparing for it uh, per se. Uh, it really is meant as a way to see how well you can communicate uh, on your feet. So, uh, you know, how one prepares for that is a, is a tricky uh, question. So, um, and the questions are uh, not necessarily why you want to go to medical school. They're actually uh, usually medically related questions that there are no clear right or wrong answer necessarily. It's more how the candidate actually approaches uh, answering that particular question. So preparation is a little bit tough in that sense uh, because... Uh, really what we're testing for, or the goal of the MMI is seeing how one communicates. I'll offer a little bit of advice on how you can prepare for an MMI very generally and broadly. Um, with an MMI, like uh, Neil was saying, they're really looking at how well you communicate. Well, how well you communicate depends on, in a lot of ways, have you taken time to reflect on your experiences that you've had in your life and fit that into a relevance for yourself um, and use the experiences that you've had to inform your stance on a particular um, scenario or circumstance or your stance on, you know, your opinion in a matter. And so um, big ticket items that you can kind of concept map or reflect on in from your own life are things like, what do you value in leadership? 
How um, do you resolve conflict? What is an effective team environment or an ineffective one? And can you, in an MMI scenario, not only kind of give your stance on that or your opinion on that, but pull from your own personal experience and explain how that um, is relevant. That's having a conversation with the, with the Raider or the interviewer. Um, and it's showing them that you're a person, you're a real person who has had experiences that have informed where they are in their life and how they, you know, present and, and how they have opinions on things. Well, I'm glad I, we didn't have that when I applied. I think I would have flunked that. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to be a scientist. Uh, we don't use the MM, uh, or whatever it is, the MMI, but we have a, a, a similar, we have some questions like that. Just reflecting on how times have changed. Thank you so much for all of the advice. So uh, we can go with one more question and then we can wrap up for the webinar today. Uh, so the next question is also also from the chat box from Megna. Uh, um, uh, so the question is, to what extent and the nature of a clinical experience might a strong candidate for an MD-PhD program? So at Michigan State, it's, it's quite important because the process we do is is you're interviewing your first interviews are going to be with the medical college and and so um they're looking for that it's 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 as important to them as the research is to the basic scientists that you're going to be interviewing with later that day and, and in a couple months so um and and we're in the osteopathic college or the DOs and so if you're interested in osteopathic medicine then obviously those medical um, shadowing experiences, the medical experiences, you need to have that experience in the area of medicine and that discipline that you're interested in. So I'll stop there. Yeah, at the University of Miami is also extremely important to show sufficient shadowing experience. While I personally don't believe that's key to become a great physician scientist, uh, I have to say the medical school I mentioned before we can twist their arm, but if there is not a sufficient number of shadowing hours where you really feel like you get really the passion also for the medical profession, uh, I think this is actually a, a red flag for the application for us. So it is important. So I, I think you you know you we're looking that you've had enough clinical exposure and you've thought about enough that you really know you want to be a physician. And there's not a minimum number of shadowing hours to do that. And fortunately, we've been able to convince our College of Medicine admissions committee not to count the shadowing hours or to or to give MD PhD applicants, uh, you know, to, to consider that in a different perspective. And we've also reminded them that there are diversity and opportunity issues with this shadowing. You know, uh, not everybody can afford to go on a mission trip to Honduras uh, and have a bunch of hours of shadowing, and and we we do take that into account. It's also hard to do uh, put the hours into the research lab and also do the same amount of uh, clinical work that a typical medical student does, and we realize that, and our medical school realizes that also. So if you're putting your time and effort into doing research, that's really what we want to see. But at the same time, we need to know that you understand. The 
what you're getting into in terms of medicine. So, but but just not to the, we don't expect the same extent as we do for a typical medical student. If you guys are listening in and think of any interesting questions that you would like to ask, please email us at doubledocspodcast at gmail.com or reach out over social media. 